0: Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Iron and Soul podcast. This is episode two. Um, Hopefully soon I won't be able to to just name episodes as one and two. We'll just say this is another episode of the Iron and Soul podcast. Um, So thank you for listening. I am really excited to have my second guest um, on here today. It's my first guest that is not related to me. Um, (laughs) Long time friend. Oh man, I was thinking about this just a little bit ago. How long we've known each other? Over almost twenty years, close to twenty years. We met. God, has it been that long? Yeah. So we'll go. We'll get into that in a little bit because it's part of the, our our journey story together. Um, but I'd like to introduce everybody to Anthony Barnett. He is a um, a great friend of mine. Um, a young entrepreneur in Lawrence, Kansas, <laughs> <Was> um, <young. laughs> super excited to have him on. Um, we are still in the apocalypse, so it is, um, April 3rd, yeah, it is April, April, 3rd. 3rd. April yeah. 3rd, um, in the apocalypse. So here we go. Um, Anthony, welcome to iron soul podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. How's it going today? Not too bad. I was yeah. filling
1: out all my Paperwork for my rescue loans from the, <laughs> from, the from the SBA.
0: Yeah, so uh, walk me through a little bit of um, the things that you have going on um, as far as business stuff and what it is that you do, and give our listeners an idea of the um, the scope of of um, of practice. I guess I don't know whatever that you do here in Lawrence, Kansas, and what you do. So I run home sweet home dog resort. I've run it for, it was 15 years last
1: December. So almost 15 and a half years. And then we, we just like just in August or September, we closed on the loan for our second location, which I sort of used to leverage into what we call the pet campus, which was for us and a couple other pet businesses. And then of course, a location for the symbiotic behavioral treatment center. So my bread and butter business is a doggy daycare and boarding facility. Uh, and then I also kind of do work through Symbiotic Behavioral Treatment Center, which is a nonprofit. But, like, that's just volunteer work. Right. <laughs> I don't right. Know, that, doesn't, that doesn't help me. <laughs> <laughs> Helps others, buddy. Yeah, Helps the goal others. is to help other people. Help but, other yeah. People, yeah. <laughs> it's so, not feeding my kids.
0: <laughs> so, um, like you said, you, you run a doggy daycare. Uh-huh. Tell... Tell us, tell me, whatever fuck we're talking about. Like, how do we even do this in the podcast? Tell me, right? Because we pretend that there's nobody outside these walls right. right now, okay? <laughs> so tell me, how did, how the fuck did you get into um, babysitting dogs? Like, what the, like, who <laughs> does that fucking shit, right?
1: <laughs> it was really weird. I was looking for, basically, just looking for a small business. Like, I went to business school at Baker, mm-hmm. and I got a business degree, and I just knew someday I wanted to do something, you know, with business. And in our senior class, we studied a few up-and-coming growth industries. And this was in 99, because I graduated in 2000, May of 2000. So, 98, 99, like my last few years. And one of them that came up was doggy daycare. And at that time, it was just this newfangled thing that was kind of big on the coasts. And, and you know, there we had to study, like, the growth curve of public expenditure on their pets and all that stuff. And so, like, that was in the back of my mind. That had been planted thanks to business school and then a girl I was dating at the time actually um, had kind of started talking about wanting to start a doggy daycare and I was like well yeah, I mean yeah, okay let's look at it and crunch the numbers and then this one that was in town had been open about a year uh, came up for sale um, and I just got a business loan and bought it what year was that that you bought the doggy daycare 2004 2004 okay yeah okay. December of 2004 okay yeah
0: I, that is actually, if I think back right now, that is about the time, if not, yeah, that was, that was when I met you right after you bought.
1: The See, and I kit. wondered if we'd known each other a little before. Do we know each other at the gym before that? Did you used to work out at the Lawrence? Yeah, Athletics? that's where we met was yeah. the gym.
0: Yeah. Um, but I can't for the life of me figure out if that was before I'm trying to figure out where, when I started at the gym um, and I can't really place it using right
1: my now. sleuthing skills that will definitely interest your listeners. I think it was a little before because then when you showed up with your newfie to do the bath, oh, I was like, right. Oh
0: shit, it's that guy. That's right. It's Josh. Yeah. So we met at the gym because I
1: recognized there. you cause you had to like the little pickup and you had to, come in the, our tiny yeah. ass shitty parking lot and That's turn right. around and back up. Yeah. So you could get, you had like, a, was it a ramp or the steps or something to get out of the back? No, I think up? we just lift, you just and lifted him out. out. Yeah.
0: Oh man. That was good a process. Old, <laughs> good old Dakota, man. That was a 150 pound new he was a biggie. Oh, yeah. 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 And That's that was,
1: right. that was back when it was like me and four people. That's right. I just right. worked open to close every day and just yeah. grinded it out. But just that steady paycheck of, a little less than ten dollars an hour since I was there all week. <laughs> right. It's pretty good deal to me. I was right. like,
0: "Shit, all right." There's a check every week. So you went from <laughs> college, right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to basically owning a business. No, there what?
1: was four years in between there. We're like, I, I, I first, and I feel like this is. I think and I'm just slightly longer younger than you and I feel like ours was the last of the generation to do this where you're like look you go to high school and you go to college and you get a job at an office like that's what you do and so I tried that track of just like okay now I guess I get a suit and a tie and I apply for a job at an office and I hated it it was awful and I didn't even last a year what was it I was a headhunter <laughs> recruiter recruiter at a just a shitty little company the guy was kind of a Not a, not a up and standing guy. Uh, yeah, it just, it was like at the interview, like I had applied there for other jobs and then the recruiter that was there recruited me to work there and said, Hey, we're looking for more. (laughs) And I was just like, look, I don't have any experience in sales. If you have established accounts, I'll, I can, I can learn the gig, but like, I've never done this before. Like, no, no, no. It's great. We got this, that, or the other thing. And I literally got in there and they dropped the yellow pages on. On the desk, and we're like,
0: "Good luck." I I find that really that name f- for that business really fucking crazy. A headhunter, like yeah, for recruiting. Yeah, when you're actually going after people, right? Yeah, They're people. Yeah, it's yeah. a strange thing. I I was mean, with people, so
1: it started um, out with me like giving an honest effort, and then it just I realized how insane it was. Like I didn't have any support or training. They sent us to some. Seminar in Florida where the guy just gets up there with his fancy suit and he's like, I want you to picture what kind of car you're going to drive. I want you to, you want that CDU? Then picture that do. And you know, he just like, he's been, of course, he's been recruiting for 20 years. So he just hops on the phone to some CEO and he's like, Hey man, I got a six figure job for you. Are you interested? The guy's like, Well, yeah, give me a call. And then he hangs up and he's like, Of course he's interested. Where, you know, it's one of those like <laughs> like eighty power sales movie. And like I left and like this is the dumb like who falls for this shit? This is the dumbest shit I've ever seen. Yeah. Every of course everybody's in there making their lists of all the stuff they're gonna buy with all their fancy recruiter money and
0: Do you think that still shit still fucking works? Do you think <sighs> do you think people really fall for that yes. like sales like yes. hey, you too, if you sell Amway, yes. you can do the thing and all that pyramid skin. Yeah, skin yeah, skin. it does. It because does. everybody
1: wants to believe the best, the very best case scenario they put in front of you and present as average. Or all you have to do is work hard, right? Because they're like, "Well, I'm a hard worker," and that's not that's not all it is. You know, is it's
0: not it, just hard work. Do you? Do you? Uh, here's a question for you about work and hard work and because there's lots of people that that work hard, and, right, or do right. hard work, right, and still make zero. It
1: doesn't work out for you. Right. Yeah.
0: So is it, what I've come to find out recently is it, it's not about hard work. It's Mm -mm. not about working hard. It's about finding the thing Yes. that you like to do. Mm -hmm. And if you find that thing that you like to do or love to do, you're going to work hard, whatever that looks like, right? Because you're passionate about the thing. You're going to work seven days a week on the thing because you love it. And it doesn't feel like work.
1: I think, at least for me, and when I talk to young like entrepreneurs at classes, or even verging on music, like music didn't work out for me, but I worked really hard at it, mm-hmm. is the transition. Like, you do have to find a way to pay bills. You do have to find right. a way to eat. So to be able, like the real grind, I think, is if your passion isn't what pays the bills in the beginning, then you're going to have to work 80-hour weeks in the beginning while you transition to that paying the bills. Like you're going to have to work really hard at a job that pays the bills. Then you're going to have to work really hard at a job you're passionate about. And eventually the job you're passionate about, if you make the right decisions and with a certain amount of luck, you can transition to that full time and maybe work a little less or work all on what you want, even if it's still 80 hours, at least it's what you want. And I think, right. I think, and that's one of the things I tell people, like, don't get discouraged about your idea just because it's not a moneymaker. Now, just understand if you want that dream, you're working two jobs for a while. Yeah. You know, and that that's the hardest thing I think for some people.
0: One of the things that I find really um recently the struggle for me, struggle's not the, I don't fucking know what the word is. Um struggling words today in general um is this idea of 40 hours versus 20 hours versus 80 hours, you know, of like work, right? Yeah. I put in the grind, man. Yep. I, I did my, you know. I'm like currently I'm like fuck that, right? I don't right. want to I don't want things to be work anymore. Right. I want things to be stuff that I enjoy doing, like sitting here with you right now. This isn't (laughs) making me dick. Right. 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 But I'm enjoying the shit out of it. Now, am I lucky enough to have a gig right now that, that gets me to, to pay the bills and and sit here and have conversations with you? Of course I do. Right. Like I'm, I'm lucky. Right. I get it. And we can figure that out. Right. Like we can figure out other things in our lives to do. It doesn't make me feel like it's work. So how do other people figure that shit out?
1: I think my, at least the way that it took for me is that that comes a little bit later in life than they lead you to believe. Like it takes time to build the foundation, not just of security, but of confidence in what you're in, where you are of like, I don't, I don't live in a mansion and I'm not like, I can give up on this thing that I was fed when I was young mm-hmm. and I can understand that I'm eating And I'm, and I'm happy. And so now I can like, I think that's another thing that's sort of dying with our generation is that martyr, that martyr syndrome. Like if you're not working 90 hours and you're not letting everybody know that you're working 90 hours, then what are you even really doing?
0: You're fucking right. I hope it dies.
1: And yeah, it needs to, it's stupid. It's so dumb, right? And I, I, you know, I started to feel more secure somewhere around 25 to 28 and I'd say around 32 or 35, I was like felt like I kind of had an understanding of life and balance. And I mean, I'm obviously, I'm still learning. Right. But I started like, you know, this is kind of dumb. Like I need to make time for things that I enjoy and I don't have to kill myself to be a productive member of society. And I mean, I'll also say I've been fortunate, you know, like that was around the time I stopped worrying about every bill and every paycheck, you know, and that. Did that, you
0: stop worrying about it because you could pay the bills or yeah. you stop worrying about it because you work to figure out like it's going to get paid either way whatever right a little of
1: both a, a little of both that that i was advancing a little bit in my career so i gained some of that psychological sort of security, security. yeah but also the faith that i mean what are they going to do turn off my cable you know like i figure figured like as long as i pay rent everything right. else is kind of it'll work out. Yeah. It'll work out. So there was, and I think some of that comes with facing some of that adversity of like, if, if you've n- never faced having something turned off or not making a bill or been way behind and been in debt and, and then come out okay on the other side, then, then you don't understand that process. So having faced down some of those things and survived them in air quotes,
0: um, right, right.
1: That gave more like, well, I handled that so I can handle it. You know, a little bit more of that for me.
0: How much is that shit made up in our brain though, right? Like how much, how much of that stuff do we spin out for, and let's just be clear to our listeners. We're, we're a couple of privileged white dudes, right? So we are the reality of, of this discussion is, is different than the reality that other people face. Right. So for us, um, who we are not paying a, a month's rent or not paying a bill earlier in life, isn't that big a fucking deal to other people in the world that can't figure out that most of the time. So with that said, how did you work through, um, your security or, or facing that worry? So you knew that you're going to pay the next bill and figure it out. Like, what did you do? Um, gosh, I feel like it's more a
1: totality of experiences than any one technique. Now, some of it was me deciding to let go of small things, like having to make a very conscious decision. So my mantra when I talk about that is the big dog don't get hooked. Mm -hmm. And we can get into where that comes from. But when something comes up that could either aggravate me or make me angry or make me anxious, I'll take a breath and take a step back. Honestly, using some of the stuff that I learned from you and Jill in mindfulness of just slowing down the process mm-hmm. of going from input to emotion, you right. know? And I'll just, like, I'll even feel that spike. I'll feel the adrenaline. I'll feel the, and then just go, you know what? The big dog don't get hooked. And it doesn't just disappear in that moment, but then I don't feed the beast and it can kind of die off as opposed to just ruminating on it and 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 letting it consume me. And and I do, I do think that comes from just seeing more of life. Yeah. Like just life doesn't scare me as most things in (laughs) life. Don't scare me as much as they used to. We won't get into COVID (laughs) right, right this second.
0: Um, so anyway, back to kind of the original, um, journey story of the business. Um, how did you get into, um, once you got the Doug dare care going, um, something you didn't, I mean, it's kind of strange that you heard about it in college four years later right. you buy a business with your girlfriend. How did you get into Pitbulls and the rescue? and walk us walk us through that because I find that whole journey story of yours really quite fascinating because it's a really because um, where you are now with it is mm. I almost want to cry just thinking about it. Just, <laughs> just kind of the stuff that you're working on now. So so walk us through like what happened? So
1: I, I stumbled into pit bulls in the same way I stumbled into the business. Um, there just, there was a dog that needed a home and, and I adopted her. I mean, the shorter version of that story. And I named her peanut after the bass player from Three Eleven. has um,
0: got grassroots, y'all.
1: They do. In fact, when I lost peanut and I shared it on Twitter and peanut like liked it and commented, oh, it was that's nice. awesome. It was that's nice. great. Yeah, and I wrote a story about her. I'm gonna digress a little bit for her fourteenth birthday. And then three eleven social media shared it. No shit. Yeah, because I wrote about the the kind of journey of dog and anxiety and their music and the role that dogs and music had played for me dealing with my anxiety. And they shared it. It was That's pretty cool. awesome, man. Yeah, I was cool. like, Happy birthday, peanut. Holy shit. <laughs> right, shout out
0: to three eleven. <laughs>
1: yeah. Awesome. Uh yeah, so that was cool. But um and then like to me it was just a dog. Like I really didn't know anything surrounding Pit bulls or the social whatever to do with that, and and then the sort of are you
0: telling me you never heard a story of a negative story about a pit bull and
1: oh I'd heard a few. That, see, and this is the weirdest story. When I was a kid, we used to pretend we were dogs, like in mm-hmm. after school care, mm-hmm. and for the longest time. If if you were tough, you were either a Rottweiler or a Doberman Pinscher. Like, Doberman Pinscher was the exotic.
0: Right. Like,
1: I'm the new kid. I just showed up at daycare and guess here's this fierce dog you've never heard of before. Right. And one kid showed up one day and said he was a pit bull. And I was like, how are you a fucking cow, man? This is a dog game. Uh, like, I didn't... I right? just could not wrap my brain around what in the hell he was talking about. And that was like my first experience with the phrase <laughs> pit bull, right? Right. So, I mean, I had heard but I tend to think a lot of things are bullshit. So I didn't, I wasn't like, now. I've heard this dogs get like, it was a six month old puppy. You know, I was like, whatever. She's a dog, you know, uh, you
0: know, to, to digress a little bit on my understanding of pit bulls. I was actually who fell into the whole understanding of pit bull from, i never heard of a pit bull until a story about a tragic story. Right. Oh, like somebody so, got attacked. or Yeah. Murder, and yeah. So, you know, and that's when, you know, and, I, and, you know, I am one of those people early on that had a stigma. Right. Mm, Yeah. Just, just because, and then my sister's a veterinarian. So she helped me work through that. But, Mm. but you know, it's, you know, it was blown up in the newspaper and it was, you know, all the shit. So just digress. So anyways, go back to,
1: so yeah, like, so then the first wave of pit bull hysteria was in the eighties. Um, the second wave of pit bull hysteria when it kind of spiked was right then, like right when I got peanut around, Gosh, that would have been 2002, maybe, or three. I mean, I don't, I don't remember exactly the dates. Mm. So I've got it written down somewhere. But, uh, and then all of a sudden it was like, holy cow, what do you mean I can't keep my dog? Like, fuck you, good luck. Good luck taking her. You know, like that that right. type of an attitude. Right. And then just the more, I mean, when I'm into something, I'm really into something. Mm-hmm. Just a sponge. Well, you know obsessives. So, oh, yeah. like, I just. i one of those. I learned everything I could possibly learn <laughs> about about dogs when I started the daycare and then about pit bulls and the history of pit bulls and all that stuff going back into fighting and, and even before that into, you know, earlier history. And I just got really into it. And I was really into that fight for a while. I was going to different cities. I was acting as kind of a consultant. I started a, a a rescue and outreach nonprofit called game dog guardian. Uh, and just got really into that. And then, like at some point I just hit a wall cause I was in a constant state of, of, uh, adversarial. I was always fighting. I was always fighting somebody about it and I just got tired of it. And I just, I, I said, I need to stay involved in this, but I need to do it in a more positive way. And just in the meantime, becoming more socially aware what really popped into my head was how having a pit bull was really my first taste of not being a, privileged, straight white guy. Like it was the first time I'd ever had any doors closed to me. It was the first time any of my options were ever limited. It was for, I was like, Oh, that's what that feels like. That kind of sucks. Like, I don't like that. Uh, you know, and obviously not, not on the same scale. Uh,
0: but you had a, you had a, yet a tiny taste of what.
1: Just a little, a just stigma, a little taste, right? a little taste of something that I could leave at home right. that I don't wear on my skin and don't take with right. me. And
0: but some stigma for being an owner yes. of a pit ball. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. And I didn't like that. And, but uh, so I started to view that connection as much more important, what we could learn, uh, you know, and and this, this could be a whole other podcast, but just, you learn about the parallels between how we view pit bulls and how we view uh, minorities and others in the country and, and very specifically black males, young black males. It's the same. Like we didn't just invent a way to talk about dogs or hate dogs or what, like it, it very much comes from the same ideas and concepts and the way racism was shaped around the myth of, of the invulnerable and overly dangerous black male. Right.
0: Um, So we, so we make them the other and then we demonize them. Right. So, and that's, it's a, yeah, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying.
1: It very, even, even down to, uh, just one example, um, this concept of hypo descent which means when two when people of two races have a child, that child can never ascend to the social status of the highest race. So if a white person and a black person have a child, that child is black. And we use that same concept with pit bulls. Like if you if a pit bull and a lab have a puppy, it's not a lab puppy, it's a pit bull puppy. Right. Uh, you know, and the same like the one drop thing, like if any amount of pit bull blood sort of taints what otherwise would have been a good dog. Like these are stigmatized. Right. People, so we though. just took the ways that we were racist and applied them to the dogs that we associated with the groups that we were being racist. towards. Right. So, so this, this sort of shapes the way I viewed how society plays a role in the human canine bond. And, and uh, it just, it's sort of transition into, this is a way for me to connect with people. This is a way for me to understand people on a different level, understand experiences on a different level. Like I still love my dogs and I still love the human canine bond, but wow, this is, this is a This way for me to learn, you know? And that sort of led to uh, me feeling obligated to share the human canine bond with people, not obligated, but having a passion for it. Right. Really? Which, you know, skipping some middle steps led me to wanting to volunteer in the veteran community. Like I didn't,
0: well, let's not skip steps. How does, how do you, how do you connect what you were doing? Cause that's not a, that's, that's important to understand, <laughs> okay. right? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over the fact that you went from that piece to veterans. Cause this, that's important to understand the process of how, how you got there. So, so how did, how did that, how did you make that connection? Well, so I guess there's a, I
1: wanted to take my dogs, the, that were good dogs and do therapy dog work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I did not volunteer for this. I've always had asthma and I'm just like, uh, what's his name from Ferris? I'm Cameron from Ferris Bueller's day off, you know, <laughs> so like true. Yeah. I've always, <laughs> I'm just drink NyQuil as a snack, you know, like I just, there's always something for wrong fun. with me. Not He's for, not fun. Doing for no, fun. No, no, I'm not <laughs> sipping. No, I won't do that. But I, I just there's always something wrong with me. I was just not cut out for it. I'm just not that guy. Although I, very early on it was a goal. Like I, I I did want to enlist, and it just it didn't work out. And right. I felt like if I wasn't going to do something on on the front side, if I wasn't going to be involved in the military, then I need to do my part on the back side, okay. which is play a role in in aftercare, transition, whatever. Okay. Like so, and for me that. I felt like I could contribute the most through dogs. Like I'd found this way that dogs connected me to people at least taught me about people, you know, and then I made a lot of friends through dogs and, and helping people with their dogs. And I just thought, man, I, dogs have really connected me with people on some levels I never would have imagined before. Uh, so I, f- I feel like I should use dogs in, and however I, I volunteer and, and want to play a role in, in this, in the veteran community, which, and again, I was just feeling around in the dark, just started making phone calls, you know, just called the VA. And they gave me the, some names of like the, like, say, hey, reach out to your local VFW and check out the, the, um, American Legion. And, and then, oh, by the way, here's this, um, the collegiate veterans association at KU, like, here's the number. And this is all kind of coming about too, because I had, I did the therapy dog testing with Liam and Leonidas. And then I went and signed up to be a volunteer at the VA, which was right around the time you were, we started kind of at the same time, didn't we?
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think, um, we, like we reconnected at God damn him. He had to move on me. Miss him. Drew. We connected yeah. at, at his, his going, going away, away party. party. Yeah. And that's when you told me you were. But I, your, but I knew you were at the VA before that, right? Didn't well, I know I was that you just were finishing up there? So we must have ran into each other.
1: Like on what campus, wherever you call something.
0: it. Something. Yeah, yeah. I can't place it. But where we connected, connected was at that, that. Yeah. But as, was that his going away party about next steps? But yeah. But then
1: kind of getting back to the whole pit bull thing, you know, Liam. Liam's a big, mellow pit bull, tall. He's not, he's not very thick. He's a tall, mellow pit bull, and Leonidas is three-legged and very energetic pit bull. They play different roles in how they interact with people, but they're they're good. They're a therapy dog. In fact, that we just did a reevaluation this last fall, which was our, I think, our sixth one, which wow. we've, they, we they've been therapy dogs for 10 years. Wow. And we had signed up at the VA. Everything was good to go. And then uh, one of the local media people said, oh, my God, there's a three-legged pit bull going to the VA to work with veterans. Can we do a story on it? So they did a media request to the office, and the guy who was running that at the time was kind of a bag of dicks and ratted me out to the...
0: I, rem- I, rem- I totally remember that.
1: Yeah. I just... Old Jim. Yeah. I'm not going to throw, oh, yeah. throw it all out yeah. there, but... Yeah. So he got me kicked out of the That's
0: VA. Right. I remember that. And
1: then I was like, what the fuck? Like, I just... Mm-hmm. I couldn't wrap my brain around what had just happened
0: because right? it just seemed so stupid. Yeah. It was terrible.
1: And that's when they were throwing the other names at me. Cause the nurses and people where I, I had been, cause I started out in long-term care in building yep. six Yep. and you know, people who were there to die, um, yep. you know, or that were there and just weren't with it. Yep. And they, you know, we've built relationships and so they were one trying to figure out where else I could go with my dogs. And I called up collegiate veterans association, uh, and Kyle answers the phone. Um, and we talked for a while and now like I met those guys are some of the closest friends. I mean, we're just, we're brothers, you know, we're so close and I I spent so much time uh, with them and they, they ended up volunteering with game dog guardian. um, And it became a real give and take uh, and just some of the God, just some of the best friendships I have. And so then doing that, working at the VA, um, working, volunteering at the VA um, and then, doing the stuff with the collegiate veteran association. We spent a lot of time joining the auxiliary at the VFW or we'll bring the dogs around, um, when they were going. And, and, um, that was around the same time that I was just kind of like, Hey, I need to start getting a grip on this sort of spiraling anxiety that I have. <laughs> and so I was, I was trying to work on that. I was doing the stuff with the veterans and I was, uh, you know, volunteering and still working with dogs and, uh so I need to come back to that in a minute I kind of skipped that part. Uh But you know what? No, I got to do it now or the next part's not going to make sense. So as a part of Game Dog Guardian, we started working with and and spe- we specialized in rescuing dogs who had been abused mm-hmm. or dogs who had been used in dog fighting. Right. Cuz we just there's a lot of rescues, there's a lot of dogs that need rescues and I kind of felt overwhelmed thinking of it generally and I wanted to pick a niche where I could work and and do good. I wanted quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. And at the time, nobody else was working with fighting dogs especially
0: in um, in Kansas or just anywhere. Anywhere, okay. There was a
1: couple national organizations who had tinkered with it. Uh but then uh Michael Vick happened and that changed everything. So
0: can you give it can you give the listeners a, a year so kind of roughly like a year God. this was?
1: I had to get out my phone and google it. Um 2006 maybe 2007 I don't remember exactly when Michael Vick happened uh I mean I guess I could google it that was that
0: was I think that was um early 2010 11 was it that late gosh yeah I think so I think it was
1: well so but then so some national organizations got involved and then it became a um I mean I, I don't mean this as insensitively as it sounds but it became something you could fundraise on
0: Oh, right. Yeah. Like
1: people saw those dogs. They saw that they were dogs, that they weren't just out of control beasts and people thought they deserved a chance, you know, and it, and it, it got the attention of the national organizations. Quite frankly, it was such a big thing that people needed their resources. Uh, so we went from like, we went to some counties in Kansas, Texas, Mississippi, Missouri, uh, I think that, I think that about covers it, but we would just like a local sheriff would hear from a different sheriff that we had helped with the dog fighting case, uh, helped with the dogs and, and he would pass our information along. And then we just kind of ended up word of mouth going to these different dog fighting busts and evaluating the dogs and working with them. Um, and then Michael Vick happened and then it became like national organizations. Now, like ASPCA has a semi truck or two that just has a whole mobile, shelter in it
0: that's crazy and they
1: can just drive up to a big enough building and set up a whole shelter and just run a dog fighting bust. like they that's, just
0: that's awesome so i was wrong you were right 2007 was it was okay the, was when he got I, april of 2007 was honestly he pulled busted. that out of my ass so i'm yep. glad that worked out yep. for
1: me yep. uh but so so that, that honestly we were able to step back from that a little bit because that on that's one of the most taxing things i've ever done emotionally right of evaluating fighting dogs and you're just you're like that one lives that one dies
0: triaging right
1: yeah and and you know like we did one down in texas where we just rolled through 40 in a in a day like, i probably wasn't that much in a day like you know i lose track but we just would get to the end and it was that rick and morty scene where they're just like why do we keep doing this <laughs> yeah. you know like <laughs> so a little bit of whiskey was had and you let it all out and then you go back to work the next day right. you know and and uh so But the, the, the reason the fighting dog stuff is important is because, and I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to go into how to build a bomb, (laughs) but people, people largely do not understand dog fighting. They don't understand what it was, what it's become. And most importantly, they don't understand what a fighting dog was or how to do that, which I'm not going to get into. But what people were doing is seeing a dog that they've, that they thought was strong because it was acting aggressively Mm -hmm. and saying, I think that's probably a good fighting dog, even though I don't know anything about what I'm talking about. So I'm going to breed that dog a bunch. But aggression comes from fear most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. So what we'd end up with, with these people that didn't really understand how to craft a fighting dog was a a warehouse full of really scared dogs. Right. Uh, And who were not only sort of, Selected with wiring that was predisposed for them to be a little scared, but then to have sort of the worst, uh, life experiences piled on top of that predisposition for fear. So traumatized, fearful, anxious dogs from top to bottom. Right. And so anxious, right? There's the key mm-hmm. word. So I'm working with dogs who fearful and anxious been through, you know, whatever experiences and I'm working on my anxiety and this became a real like, holy cow, I see. Some, I see a lot of the same stuff happening here. Right. But no. But and then also, the ability to recognize myself that my anger and my lashing out was from fear and from insecurity. Like if I'm feeling confident and strong about something, I'm not angry about it. You know. Mm-hmm. And so I was. I was able to walk myself through some of those processes, working with the dogs and working with myself, and say, um, "Okay, wow, I learned something from that." Like I, I walked that dog through something, and then I learned. About, I got an insight on my process too.
0: So when did is that when you truly started understanding the bond?
1: Yes, between yes, and in a way, understanding bonds that I haven't, I have yet to experience. Like I've never worked with a working dog, but I worked around them. I mean, some people will call my therapy dogs working dogs, but in a sense that, uh, in the strictest sense, I've never had, I've never gone in the field with a dog. I've never done search and rescue. So I, I even understood on that step four, like how many more levels there were to the human canine relationship. Um, and, and that, that experience with game dog guardian, which came from my experience with pit bulls, which came from, which came from, that all led me to the idea that I approached you guys with at Drew's going away party, Mm -hmm. which was the symbiotic behavioral treatment center, which is, I, I know I need help. I know these dogs need help. And I really think we can knock this out with one stone, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) You know, like, so that was kind of the transition from pit bulls to mental health with dogs for me. Um, and obviously there's, there's a lot of details to all that stuff in there that we just don't have time for. But um, but that, that was the sort of like, wow, here's, here's the way that I can, I can help. Here's a way I can make a difference. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, I guess that kind of catches us up with what I'm, well, trying to do today, yeah, s- uh? <laughs> sort of. I want to get
0: back to kind of this: how, like, what have you seen with your dogs and the veteran community? Because I know when I when I catch up with you and I speak with you, you have so much passion about that and mm-hmm. so much um, joy and energy when we talk about that. So, so where are you at and um, with that piece? And and what have you seen through taking your two puppies to the the VA with veterans? Well, that, I mean,
1: what I've learned from them and from spending so much time. So it's been, yeah, it's been about 10 years. I would say yeah. I've been kind of working, working, I'm volunteering in that community. Right. Um, I consider it a labor of love. So I guess that's why I keep going yeah. to work, but, yeah. um, I, I noticed early on a very distinct segment of within the veteran community who felt something was wrong, but did not feel a part of the PTSD community. Mm -hmm. Like they had friends that they felt like definitely had PTSD. They didn't feel like they had earned that or, or that they were on that level, but but something was off. Mm -hmm. And it, it turned me on to some ideas that I had read in college, uh, by Daniel Quinn, which was this idea that, that, The way we live now is not the only way humans have lived. And it was the first time that I was introduced into the concept of hunter-gatherers and tribe and how people used to live Mm -hmm. and what that can mean to us. Um, But I guess to state the the thesis up front, it, it made me aware of, you know, in people this idea of a moral injury or of trauma that you need to deal with that there's, there's an underlying condition that all of us experience to some degree, some people very little, some people a lot, which is that we evolved to, to live in communities in which we all matter and we're all connected. And dogs evolved in those communities with us to work, to earn our day, to, to, to have the energy to survive and that everybody played a role that was significant and we all mattered to each other because we were a village or a tribe in a certain way. Um, and that in our culture now, very few of us matter viscerally. We struggle to find that, uh, ability to matter. Uh, my shorthand is bonds and purpose. We find a, a struggle to find a real purpose and we struggle to find real bonds. And that I'm seeing that in dogs as well. They don't work anymore. They sit at home. They sit on their couches, just like we sit in our cubicles. We come home, we walk them. We spend some time. We play fetch. We might go hiking. But they don't get up in the morning with us and go earn the day with us and then go to bed with us. Not in my bed. That hurts my back. But you know what I mean? Yep. Um, and now they're all on all the same drugs that we're on. Literally all the same drugs that we're on.
0: Little volume, right? So
1: I started to think, of. and like I don't have any trauma. I'm a dude, and I mean I'm short. I'm I'm little. I'm a manlet, I guess you would say. A little, but little, I'm but i Napoleon. Yeah, yeah, but I'm stout. Like yeah. nobody's ever tried to do anything to me. I've never had to survive any trauma. I've never been in combat. I've never. Why am I anxious all the fucking time? Like why am I wound so tight? What's mm-hmm. wrong with that? And same thing in dogs. Like why? Why are you chewing your leg off, dude? Like you've got all the food, in the more you got a soft bed, and you're literally chewing your leg off, your tail off, whatever. And and that that's that idea that there, there's an underlying condition that we all experience to varying degrees. Again, some very little, some a lot, of just anxiety from not finding bonds and not finding purpose. And and then where that ties into the military is not the discovery of tribe, but but, or, or not losing tribe, but the discovery of tribe. Like we all, I came into this experience with a void. This void was filled for me. I found bonds in a way that I didn't really understand you could bond with somebody. And the example I'd talk about a lot at the VA is how many of you can think very fondly of somebody, somebody you love and would kill and die for, but like you don't like them. Like that's, he's not a good person. I'd kill for him. I'd die for him, but he's kind of an asshole. Mm -hmm. Nobody like civilians largely can't ever say that. If we don't like somebody or they're a jerk, we just don't hang around them. Right. There's never any reason to see beyond those things that we don't like or to be in a situation where you learn, you can trust that person, you rely on them, even if they don't like them. Like it's, it's just different, right? It's just a different kind of connection. And that, that that I guess is why I felt the need to point out too that I've never had a working dog in that sense is because that's that different level of connection with the dog too is setting out to to, to accomplish a purpose, purpose to teach them to do something and then you two learn to work together and you go out every day and you accomplish something together.
0: Why why, why do you minimize, and, I, and I don't, I'm not trying to be an asshole here, but why no. do you minimize um, you and your two dogs that you do working stuff with in the sense of you, you are helping people. You are changing people's yeah. lives. You are doing things, but yet you minimize it. And and I don't. And for the listeners, I'm not. I know Anthony well enough that I can challenge kind of yeah, no. his thought process that because you are working and they are working and they're doing stuff and you are bonded to them and they're bonding to other people and they're and they're helping others. It just isn't in Colorado in an avalanche or right, not right. sniffing out bombs in Iraq. But they're 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 working and they're working hard. And you're helping them do that, and you're bonded to them. So why do you? I just, I just want people to know that that what you do and what your dogs do are just as important as what what other people do with their dogs in the working system. It just looks different. I think, I think to your point. I
1: don't mean to minimize m- my dogs or my experiences. I guess I just mean to elevate the people who have taken of it to a different level, right? You know, and I think. I think specifically, I think of like dogs that go into combat with people. You know, there's a lot of people who think, uh, like, how could you do that to a dog? But it's just, uh, you know, you're not doing that to the dog. You're doing it with the dog and, and you know, you guys are a team and that's just an experience going into combat with a person is an experience I'll never have. It's a connection I'll never have. Um, and, and I mean, honestly, thankfully, but so I miss out on some of the, positives that come of that that's one of the taboos in civilian culture is to speak positively of combat experiences not of war necessarily but right you know like like i think we ask veterans to renounce that part of their experience so that we know they're not monsters
0: uh i see what you're saying you know
1: so uh so i but i i'm digressing a little i don't I, i think it's more to elevate That because I do recognize there's people who put a lot of time and energy into doing a job with their dog that I just haven't yet. Yeah, I hope to. I hope that as we build this facility, I'll have more access to some of those, like dog sports and programs and things that, like now I can finally experience this working relationship with a dog
0: that's a little beyond even what I've done so far. For my for my one listener out there that you'll be reaching, (laughs) Anthony, to give a little just piece of Anthony Anthony's a super humble dude super kind dude so he's (laughs) never gonna he's never gonna say yeah I've changed people's lives I've and I'm gonna he as he's elevating other people I'm gonna elevate his story and understand that he's he's helped many many people I worked at the VA for a year I understand the process that that I under uh, I understand a small process of what veterans go through and the fact that you're impacting people's lives is is on for almost 10 years. Like that's, I mean, that's not like you just been doing it six months. Right. Right. We're here (laughs) talking with somebody that's been doing that for 10 years. That's that we, that I would, I have no problem saying is an expert in what he's doing in that world. Because before that there was very many, very little people that did what Anthony did with, with his dogs and going to the VA and helping veterans. That was, we, as much as it's, it's the cool thing to do now, Mm -hmm. and I don't mean to, to, to give it less importance, but you were on the cutting edge of helping people with that piece at that time. And we know that, right? Like we've, we've had many conversations that, that about that. Um, so I just tell the the one listener that Anthony's <laughs> humble. I'm going to raise him up as he's raising other people up. So I don't want, I'll well, do thank that. You. Yeah. So. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so have you always loved dogs? Have you mm-hmm. always been a dog? No. No.
1: I mean, when I was younger, somewhere in my early teens, like 11 or 12 or something, I started to ask my parents about getting a dog just Mm because it seemed like something fun to do. Uh, And then somewhere in high school-ish, they got our first dog, uh, Shih Tzu, named Angel. (laughs) Fucking Shih Tzu. Yeah. (laughs) Well, because my my, my mom and with, uh, you know, I've always had allergies and I think there was an assumption that I would have a dog allergy. I have a cat allergy, but nothing with dogs um so the whole this whole that whole concept of like hypoallergenic dogs right. that don't shed and probably don't poop big right like now that i'm an adult i feel like that went into the calculus of right. like this all <laughs> right this <laughs> dog's like, gonna be easy to clean up right this dog shit's small yeah <laughs>
2: <That's>
1: so true <laughs> but yeah so that was my first you know when i moved away and uh i just didn't have another dog till peanut
0: I love that part of the story. And the reason I love that part of the story is is that it doesn't – there's not this idea that passion or journey or things have to happen at a certain time right. early on. You stumbled into this passion and has now become – something deeply embedded and passionate into your life. It wasn't something like when you were five, like I love dogs, you know what I mean? Which is a fascinating piece to not even in college. Right.
1: Like when I was in college, if you're like, Hey, when you graduate, you're going to run a doggy daycare and be totally into dogs. I would be like,
0: you're fucking, I need to change
1: course because that sounds like I'm going to be wearing plaid and corduroy. Like, I'm not down with
0: that. Yeah, so (laughs) I I fucking had a dog. Like, I had a dog in college that I went and I loved. But I would say that you're more passionate and probably a way better dog owner than I am. And I've had dogs my whole entire fucking life. Well, you
1: adopted dogs from us. You're a great dog. I know, man. I
0: I don't... You know, to be honest, all the dogs that we get, except for one in my marriage, have been decided by somebody else. (laughs) So, just saying... Were you married when you had... How long have you been in jail? Were you married when you had your Newfoundland? That was Jill. So we were. Okay. So I had okay. two golden retrievers and she had a Newfoundland when we, when oh, we met. Oh. Okay. And so then we, you know, that was our. I just
1: assumed the Newfoundland was like burly guys.
0: Nope. No. Oh. No, that was her dog, man. Wow. This little 5'254 okay. skinny little college girl with his 150 pound Newfoundland, man. Nobody ever fucked with her, man. See?
1: Me and my stereotypes. Yeah. See? Oh, dang right? It. Yeah.
0: Yep. That dog, huh. that that was, yeah. So I've, you know, I like them, and yeah, I, and I love the dogs that I have, but I've always been around them. So it's an interesting, like, difference where you're you're bonded on some level to your dogs that I'll never have. With and I'll, I'll admit this right now, like, if I'm okay with that, like, I don't need to be bonded okay. to, <laughs> to to my dog the way that you are. Like, it's okay. I love them and they're fun.
1: Well, and even getting outside of. Of, of my sort of life pursuits and professionally or, or volunteer wise, is it was always called Peanut my butterfly wings because when she came into my life, she set my course, mm-hmm. you know, with the doggy daycare and the game dog guardian and symbiotic behavioral treatment center and all that stuff. But she also set me on a course to meet my wife. Oh, journey story there. Yeah. So, because I was in, so game dog guardian. Of course, I always have to run my own shit. So I couldn't right. just join somebody else's rescue. I had to do it my way. Yeah, That's right, you did. And so, but then we started working with or sort of cooperating with other rescues. And then we got involved. It was called the uh, Kansas City Dog Advocates, where it was just a bunch of individuals or, or people from organizations. We worked together on the pit bull ordinances around and just, and that grew into either just animal ordinances in general. Like, how do we have the best community with the most? Uh, intelligent and forward-thinking animal ordinances. Like, how can we protect the bond legislatively? Um, And, but Katie worked with one of those, with um, MABBR, Men America Bully Breed Rescue. She started out with Missouri Pitbull Rescue. She worked with MABBR. And just through that work with the legislation, like we saw each other and like kind of caught each other's eye. But it was like... I've never cheated on anybody. (laughs) (laughs) We we both were involved with other people. I just like... Oh man, she's hot. She seems cool. You know, okay. and just like moved, moved on, moved on in my life. And, and, but then, uh, you know, she ended up being like my soulmate. Right. So that was cool. And, and I had four dogs at the time and she had four dogs at the time. Oh, my God! <laughs> so we did Brady bunch, right? Yeah, we did. married or we got together even before we married, we had eight dogs and she had a few foster dogs at the time too. So there was at one point where there was like 12 dogs in my like 1100 square foot house. God, like, damn.
0: is that the one off of? It was out south of town. Yeah,
1: it was the one on the yeah. south part of town. Yeah. And I mean, obviously adopted those out, got them, in, and we settled in at our, well, it started out around nine because my ex at the time, we were still, we did split custody with dogs. Oh, <laughs>
0: oh, fuck, I remember going over to your house that one time. Yeah. We had like, I think eight dogs yeah. in there. Yeah, it was, yeah. And like them, they were like walled off in different areas. Yeah. We, and had, and uh, this, we, this we managed these, it responsibly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we, I still had another dog, Ian funny story about Ian's related to everything we're talking about I'll come back to it in a minute um but my ex ended up taking him to California so when we when I broke up with her a while before well a year and a half before Katie and I got together uh you know the bond being as important as it is to me I was just like obviously we'll share the dogs like I'm not I'm not trying to split up the dogs I'm not trying to take them from you whatever so we had this kind of split custody thing that drove Katie nuts but was she
0: your groomer at the trainer trainer she was mm-hmm. your trainer at the Doggy daycare, right? Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. Okay. She's the one
1: who got me into it, uh-huh. I like to look at it. And then she went to dog training school and she, she came back. She's a really good trainer. Yeah, she, so that, she that segues. She trained
0: Butch. Oh, nice. Bit, yeah. yeah.
1: That segues nicely into the Ian story. Mm-hmm. Uh, she took Ian with her to California. She's a really good trainer. And she trained him and got him in a Discovery Channel. Like documentary, he was like scary dog locked in car. Ah. So like when hooded guy was going around looking for cars to break in, Ian like charged the window. And oh, that's argh. awesome. Yeah. So, but then he got a part in Fruitvale Station.
0: I don't know what that is. It's
1: the story about the kid who was shot by the Bart cop who, who then said he was going for his taser. Like there was an altercation on the train. Mm-hmm. They handcuffed everybody involved in the altercation. And um, then the guy like the, are still, it was still heated. And the the officer shot the kid when he was on on sitting on the ground in cuffs, and you know the and this is apparently a thing in law enforcement, like the the SWAT teams where I worked with would like the the sergeant, well he's a captain now, would tell me like he wears this taser up on his chest so there's never any mistaking it for his pistol. But
0: interesting. The yeah. the
1: officer's side was that he was meant to tase the kid and he shot him, and Fruitvale Station was his story. Uh, and Michael B. Jordan played him uh, in, in the movie. Okay. And he had a, a cameo. Ian had a cameo appearance when, when Michael B. Jordan was was filling up his gas tank at a gas station. You see Ian in the road, and then Ian's hit by a car, and the car just drives off. And, and Michael B. Jordan runs out there and picks him up and screams for help, and nothing happens, and Ian dies. In the movie. Obviously, I was like, well, I know Ian's okay, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, but then they started going on doing interviews and Ryan Coogler is a director mm-hmm. and, and they, bo- they both said that that was a meant as a, as a, an allegory or a little tale about how society views young black men mm-hmm. that they just, they die in the street. Somebody screams for help. Nobody cares. And we move on. And that was so like sort of tying back to the lessons that I wow. had tried to draw from pit bulls. Ian ended up starring in a movie to sort of make that point. That's like crazy. after, that's yeah,
0: a weird circle. How that is totally bizarre. That's what I love about this podcast. Yeah. This yeah. Circle
1: of we did a big, uh, I did a big article on the game dog guardian website and we, you know, featured the movie, you know, I got talked about the roots of game dog guardian and how I was trying to learn these lessons about society from pit bulls. And then they, turn around and just did that in the movie with Ian. It was wild.
0: What's the name of the movie again, just for our listeners that want to fruit, one St- listener,
1: <laughs> fruit, Vale station,
0: fruit, Vale station. Okay.
1: And it's tough. I mean, it's okay. tough. For, I just, I don't, I tend to stay away from movies that increase my stress level. Mm-hmm. And that was one that it stressed me a little bit because regardless of your feelings on society and mm-hmm. stuff like that, it was, he was a, he was a person with parents and a kid and people yeah. who cared about him. And, you know, obviously the officer has his, like it's just it was tough for yeah. me to watch just yeah, it was generally a tough movie but uh, I'm glad I saw it I'm glad I yeah. I learned and and of course I was we haven't talked about this at all but I was at the time doing my embedded work with the Kansas City SWAT team too yeah. so I was able to kind of talk talk to them about it as well the right. right. different perspectives and
0: you've done a you've done a lot of different things and had a lot of different yeah. experiences I haven't you yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah so like along with this with Game Dog Guardian since I brought it up I embedded with the SWAT team from I think when we traced it back, it was April of either 2013 or 2014 where I did my first ride along yep, I remember that. and it lasted about four years. It stopped when kids started. <laughs> like I stopped uh, going out with them. Kids, yeah. Uh, like yeah, they when change we, of course, don't they? Yeah. When we had Lena, we stopped. Uh, I stopped and then I finally, I went out once again or twice mm-hmm. and then, and then we had Rosa. And of course, now that I have two kids, I don't do anything. Like I know I've,
0: you sit at home in the corner, yeah, like shaking.
1: I've been in COVID quarantine since March of
0: 2019. <laughs> I, I, I feel ra- relatively lucky that I was able to coax you out of the out of the quarantine to come have a chat with us.
1: No, I uh, just once we had a second kid, I don't do anything. Like we start cooking dinner at three thirty or four, and and then they're in bed by nine if we're lucky, and then I just nothing happens anymore. I don't do anything.
0: <laughs> well, what's what are you supposed to do?
1: Uh, well, I just So, but I mean, so that's why I dropped the SWAT. Thing, right. Because I haven't, I have, but we, I know. used to go out with them. The whole point of that program was to work with police to reduce dog shootings. Uh, but my approach again, have to do it my way was that I felt like we really needed to take their perspective into account. I wanted to work with them and not at them. Right. I didn't want to lecture at police officers and I didn't want to try and tell them about dogs without understanding what they do. and, and, which I got a taste of on the very first warrant, where my heartbeat just a little bit faster, was I was in the van and they they, you know, like flash masks up and stacked mm-hmm. out of that thing and got on the door. And I realized I'm I'm just sitting here staring <laughs> straight out the van and straight at the front door. And just at some point it dawned on me, like, man, if they shoot out that door, that's coming. And then I did like a Looney Tunes, like Wile E. Coyote leg thing where I just reached my leg over and scooted myself out of the
2: direct line
1: of of shot. I I had to wear a bulletproof vest when we were out. And there were some times that, you know, some interesting things happened. And I got a a perspective on the sort of adrenaline involved in that and the the pace, you know, like how quickly decisions get made and and what each person's job is that you can't, if you're, you know, if you're in a stack and your job is to do one thing, and you decide to go on dog patrol, then you're not doing your job and you're risking the life of somebody around you. Right. So it was important to even consider the job stuff on, or the dog stuff on who should be considering dog stuff. And, but we're kind of getting too far into that. But so we did, I did that program with them for a long time and, and, and they were very, they were very great to work with. Still good friends with a few of those guys. Uh, I'd love to get out again and do it. I don't, you know, again with the kids, I don't know, but um,
0: you'll get back out. The thing about kids is they grow up, Right. (laughs) <laughs> get older at least right and you get to you get your freedoms back so you'll get some freedoms back where you yeah choose to be able to choose to do some yeah. different things or new adventures the, the one thing that i really love sitting here and chatting with you about and, and reminiscing some of it right so i get to reminisce kind of far of like from your experiences right, right. I think about all these different experiences that you've had that it, that we're just kind of just oh yeah by the way I remember I was you know went out <laughs> with the SWAT team and I do this thing for the the VA and I'm like this expert and then I got this thing I'm camp, this gigantic dog campus I'm building <laughs> west of town and oh right I'm living in the apocalypse right right now. right so also I'm scared of everything so I'm scared of everything right and and it's just an it's just an interesting.
1: It's kind of wild when you put it like that. Yeah, it's, it's, kind of wild. it's
0: pretty, it's pretty fast, fantastic. I used to play music too. That I stopped when I, I, I had remember, kids. Yeah, I used to play music. <laughs> I mean, so, so I'm going to, we're going to get into just a little bit of, uh, a little, little deeper stuff on Anthony's end. I, I didn't know if we would go here, but I think it would help the one listener that's listening. Um, that one of the things that Anthony and I met at the gym and I, And I, I think for me um, working out um, and doing that stuff helps with reducing my, my own Mm -hmm. anxiety that I have just being a human being in a, in a world that doesn't need anxiety. But we have, we create, we can go, we can go on this whole thing about how, how human beings in this day and age create fear and anxiety for themselves because they don't have the, the, the fear of the bear anymore. Right. Attacking them. Most of us don't anyways. So I met Anthony at the gym because I needed, I've always worked out for a long time, but at that point in my life, I needed something different. I had to lose some weight and had my first kid and blah, 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 blah. blah. And it helped me with some anxiety. So walk me through or just talk about a little bit about like your struggles with anxiety, what exercise has done for you in that area, what you're dealing with now without, I don't limited exercise or whatever. Mm-hmm. So let's talk, let's talk about fucking lifting weights a little bit. So I think
1: I've, I've actually started to view working out in two ways to do with my anxiety. One is is kind of what I talked about. We used to earn our day. Mm-hmm. And, and in my experience, and, and I would have to say some of this led me to to Dr. Alarty's book. Mm-hmm. So some of this comes pretty directly from the depression cure. The Dr. depression Allardy. cure, Dr. Ilardi, yeah. Yep. Um, of just um, just working out for me doesn't necessarily help my anxiety which is kind of what I've been able to do lately, which is just get in the workout okay. for me. I have to push myself into that 90% heart rate, panic heart rate mm-hmm. and sustain it for a little bit of time for me to come out of that and say, Oh, I just don't have anything left to be anxious with.
0: Is it, is it, is it okay? So let's, 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 let's break that down a little bit, right? Okay. A little clinical here. Is it the, the fact that you push yourself to that spot where you sometimes normally are with anxiety. So if you're not working out and you're really scared of something or you feel for a really anxious, you're in that heart rate zone, not necessarily working out, but that, that like, Oh fuck, I'm going to die or whatever. Right. Right. That fear. What ifs catastrophizing, right? Yeah. When you're in that zone and working out, there's that feeling of like, Oh fuck, I'm going to die. Yes. But it's because I'm working out so fucking hard or I can't lift another thing. Right. So it's that there's a parallel.
1: Yeah. And for me, I can't, I can't pull enough air when my heart rate hits that and I just can't get enough air in. It panics me a little bit. Right. And then to survive that creates a little bit of euphoria for me in addition to just burning that fuel. So like those so, calories are gone.
0: But part of that is that you exposed yourself, right? Like, yeah. you do like some exposure work there. I think, right? I think so. I think there's well. a
1: little bit of, of, uh, of the exposure. So when we do,
0: when we do exposure work in for people with, um, uh, different anxieties and, and, um, we do exposure therapy. We, we, we get people's heart rate up high, um, in different forms before we, expose it's before they go out and expose them to the the snake or the tall building or whatever, we get them up to to, to let them know that they can cope, right? Because that's what right. happens out there. Tunnel vision, shortness of breath, right. things like that. So you were doing that to yourself, right. Realizing that you can cope with that were to happen.
1: But I later. I'll also say, much
0: like why I have to go to physical therapy,
1: I have trouble pushing myself into that range. I was much more effective when Wayne Was pushing me into it, Mm. because I would have. My instinct is, you can't breathe. Just take a minute. It's just a minute. Mm -hmm. Whereas Wayne's like, spend thirty seconds, man, go. So when I had somebody that could push me in to that zone, Wayne at Go Hard Training, I should say, since I'm, oh Wayne, I haven't seen that dude in years. (laughs) Yeah. So to have that little extra, and that because that's the same thing with me in physical therapy. Like if I know a muscle needs to be released, I had a certain level of pain, and I'm like, yeah, no, fuck it, Mm -mm, that hurts. But if right. a therapist is doing it to me, I'm just like, I'm going to cuss and cry and laugh, but don't stop.
0: Does it have to go with, <laughs> does it have to go with not feeling like you're weak? Or is it just, you like that push from somebody else?
1: I just respond to it better. Okay. I, I won't push myself that far into the zone. Survival instincts, I guess, of like, you know, I, I don't I'm, know. I'm,
0: I'm similar. I can do that to myself in different ways, but there are lots of people that can put themselves on their own in that.
1: Oh, Wayne so, absolutely can.
0: Jill can too. She can get oh, herself. She, if I tell her to work harder, she's like, fuck off. Leave me alone. Like I'll, I'll get there. You don't need to tell me. And now the me. one way
1: to get me to do it is to make it an intellectual exercise to say like, you need to run X amount of stairs in X amount of time with only 20 seconds between stairs. Like, cause then now, now I'm regimented and I'm on it and it's not me just saying, look, so you I need really box. Yeah. That box. Yeah. You need that box to be yeah. In a little bit. Okay. Yeah. And okay. so that, that helps. And then I think, to, to tie it to some of the other stuff I've talked about, I think that's why exercise communities. Cause I got the, when you said, let's talk a little weights, like you're talking to your people, you're talking to your community. Mm-hmm. I think that becomes a shared experience in our sort of eternal search for tribe, right? That's a place where people find a certain amount. I think that's one of the reasons CrossFit got so big. And I know there's a lot of takes on CrossFit, mm-hmm. but people pushed into that zone right together. Yep. And it, it, you know, regardless of whether or not you can get hurt doing too many Olympic lifts for time, that's a different conversation. Right. People pushed into a discomfort zone, a panic zone together. Yep. And it, it it created a shared experience that you survive that together. And I think it's one of the reasons not just the CrossFit, but just for all the offshoots and different styles of workouts. It's why we're always looking for community and exercise. Is because we're always looking for tribe. Me with my Bronco shirt on. We're always looking for something oh, to belong to.
0: <laughs> that, and and we could say that that's probably in anything we do, whether whether it's church. Yes. Whether it's work. Right. We're, there's tribe and work.
1: We're constantly searching for tribe mm-hmm. and we won't accept that we're constantly searching for tribe. So it only gets spoken of negatively.
0: Right. I was about to say that, like there's this idea that it gets pushed in that way. Like, oh, that we're
1: getting so tribal and getting, blah blah blah. Yeah. Well, maybe there's a reason we're always trying to get so fucking tribal. There's a reason.
0: And and the fact that we can't and the and the people that fight against tribe are a tribe.
1: Yes. Right. <laughs>
0: like there's that there's this piece of that that's and that's and what people don't understand is that how people survived was working together. Yep. Not the one person, you because you were dead if you were one before. Yeah, and we, we survived together. You survived together. What makes you think that we can do that now? What do you think's happening while we're all quarantined? Think about the people that are by themselves in their apartment. Those people are suffering hugely, and we don't even get it, right? Yep. I mean, I've got a house full of four other people, and I still need more, right? Like, they're my tribe, but I need more. I need conversations with you. I need fucking jujitsu back, man. Like, that thing I need back and the zoom stuff and all that stuff via tech is not good enough for me. It's I would also posit
1: that we're constantly searching for tribe because we never find it. Even in, in most of our closest relationships, we don't quite get there.
0: Yeah. Cause we don't die. with We don't almost die with each other or right. people actually die. And that, right. So
1: most of us are searching for what I'll sort of blithely call fake tribe. Mm-hmm. And we settle for fake tribe. Whereas in the veteran community was not searching consciously, but found real tribe, oftentimes, not every time. And then that's ripped from them when they get back into the civilian world. And the void that that leaves is lumped in with PTSD. This like feeling unsettled, feeling anxious, not able to find where you belong anymore, that we just don't have a label for it now. We lump it in with PTSD, which at this point in the conversation, I'd be remiss that... That obviously, Sebastian Younger, has kind of brought this to the fore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like the first person I read that planted these ideas of tribe in me was Daniel Quinn, but for reasons we don't have to get into, I, I fell away from it a little bit. He asked a lot of great questions and didn't give me the answers, and so I got away from him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just sort of youthful, like, well, what's the answer then? And working with the veterans realize there doesn't have to be an answer. Like all we're doing is recognizing that this is the cost of doing business. This is the cost of the modern world. Right. You know? So we have all these great like Advair that keeps me alive. I'd be the first one. If I had to run around in a field full of pollen to get my food, I'm the first dead fucker out there, man. Like I'm, (laughs) I'm alive because of what we've been able to accomplish as a society, but we have to recognize the cost of doing business, which is that we don't, satiate this need that we have for bonds and for purpose. And, and I obviously I shouldn't have left that out this far, but Sebastian younger, he's given Ted talks and speeches that and articles fantastic. in his book tribe, which honestly, I think if, if everybody wants something to read during the pandemic now, read tribe, it's Rich, a look, short read.
0: And what's interesting about tribe, right? And he would, and, and Sebastian would, would admit this too, because he said it, he had zero research. Right. On, on his hypothesis of tribe, other than his time spent with the veteran community, embedded, yeah, yeah, embedded as a as a war journalist, right?
1: And we should say so. He directed uh, Res- R- uh, Restrepo and Korengal. Yep. Those were the two, I guess, documentaries uh, that yeah. he that he directed, and then. But he spent so much time making them that he came away. He's a journalist, yep. and so he came away with some pretty strong feelings about the bonds forged in combat.
0: And the bonds that he had with those guys that he was chilling yeah, with. Yeah, you because know. it's
1: a shared experience for them now. Even though he wasn't a fellow combatant, he yep. was a fellow experiencer. Uh, so there are shared experiences between them, and, and it mm-hmm. sort of set him down. And I feel like he gave me permission to come back to the seeds that were planted by Daniel Quinn.
0: Well, and you know, this gives me... So intellectually, I, I wish I mean, people could see it gives me goosebumps for about the thing I'm about to say, is that you get to have a piece of that as well with what you do. You get to have some of that experience. What you don't, you didn't go to combat with those dudes, or those ladies, and those and those guys, but you get to experience with them, with the dogs, some type of sh- some type of sharedness with that. You get to you get to spend time in that world and have that, and I think that's important to. To understand that you get some of that, right? Yeah,
1: little. I think we're always looking for reflections of that, and I certainly am.
0: And even with the SWAT team, you got to spend, you got to exist along with them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where a lot of us don't get those opportunities to do that. So you get an understanding of that.
1: And they're even coming out of that there. He was a sergeant at the time, again. He's a uh, captain now. Uh, Chip, Uh, I won't, I don't know, full names, whatever, but Chip. He's just, he's one of our closest friends, Yeah, you know, and we just hit, I, I presided at, at him and his wife's wedding. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And we, we, we try to stay in touch, but we have set aside every year we get together at Christmas time. That's like, awesome. that's our one. Like we, yeah. you know, we can't hang out as much and do things, it's you know, like we used to, but, baby, right? Yeah. kids, but we do, we text every once in a while, you know, I make sure he, he was in charge of, of, of the, uh, all the sort of police involvement in the Super Bowl
0: party. Oh shit! (laughs) So like,
1: I was like, hang in there, bro. You know, like we still talk. Um, and he's just, he's, you know, and I, I, I I laugh at his response to this, but I was, I was getting, our relationship was forming right around the time my dad was dying Mm -hmm. and it became apparent to me that consciously or subconsciously he was becoming a man in my life that meant something and that I, I wanted to be, that I felt good that he was there for me and that I could be accountable to and just father figure type things, but he's not that much older than me. <laughs> I mean, right. well, so well, well, he, well, like he, you, I told him that he was like, Hey, come on, man. I'm more like your older brother. And I was like, well, I mean, yeah, that's what I meant.
0: But Do you do you, do you look at it as a father, fintor, father figure? Thing no men, mentor type mentor, mentor, mentor yeah. but
1: it, it just, it'd be, I, th- I just think losing my dad at that time, put it in a different focus that I did. I valued, that male. Well, there's somebody there for you. Yes. Right? That yeah. Yeah. Chill with. There's yeah. There's
0: been, there's been times in my life that I've had gone through hard times and there was, there were, yeah. f- there were friends there that were, that have significant.
1: Right. He's a guy that. Yeah. and he has lived life and he's mm-hmm. had experiences yep. and he's lost people. And yep. so I, older brother is a much more, yeah. <laughs> he just, I got that. Oh, come it's on. Come I was like, hard. well, I, you know, I didn't mean it like that, right. yeah, I get it for <laughs> but, sure. but yeah, so that, I mean, that was something that, that came out of that, that, that meant something. And that that's actually, I guess it's where my work again, air quotes for a podcast is headed. Now is how do we search for tribe? Right. Where do we find tribe? What's the closest analogs that we have in civilian life. It's something I hope to bring to fruition in the next year or so. I, in fact, I'm hoping, you know, once the like immediate fires are put out, I can really dig into that, those efforts. I mean, I, I have it outlined how I want to approach it. Uh, but this constant search for tribe, uh, what, what does that mean? How do we fill that void unsuccessfully in my hypothesis? Right. And, and also sort of examining when I say tribe, what, what exactly do I mean? I've started calling them the pillars of tribe. So if I want to say that, that in a, particularly in a combat experience, but also in a non-combat, like being on a boat, just military experience in general for a lot of people, not for everybody. Some people do feel isolated and don't feel a lot of connection in the military. Um, what is that? You know, how, 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 how is that formed beyond the obvious? Cause they're not living as hunter gatherers. So that's so, not it.
0: So I want to challenge a thought from you in this idea of tribe and that, that there's not, I don't know how you phrased it, but you, you said something like, Oh, we're not, we're always searching for it. We're not able to get to it. Right. thing. how are we supposed to get to it currently? If before, there was, oh, we're going down. I'm going to, I don't know if I want to go down this path, but i will just say it before there was monogamy before there was <laughs> that stuff. And we lived amongst, I love monogamy. Lo- love you, babe. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. Like yeah. we're, we're now in, in an, well, there, I mean, monogamy open, whatever you, people do, that's whatever. That's, that's their thing. People are, should be happy. But what I'm saying is that when you're married in a monogamous relationship, that's your tribe. It's harder to find tribe in the sense of what you're talking about once that exists. I so, agree. so we I would challenge you to think about like that we we can find tribe. We can find tribe in the in the world. It just looks different than it used to, right? Like I can find a tribe in working with you someday with the with the things that we're working on. And then in that system, and I can find, I've I've definitely found tribe in jujitsu, right? Like that's a whole, and I'll, and I'll go into that in another podcast at some point when you, when you roll around people and they try to kill you, literally try to kill you, right? Like
1: in a younger body, I used to do that.
0: You would, um, and I would argue you should still do it, but I need to try to get um, through my physical therapy first. (laughs) Fucking complaining about your goddamn little body, (laughs) but that creates a bond different than others is is that you after you've been choked out by somebody you tap and then you're like hey you're my best friend no right? I, yeah, like I completely completely so I agree think tribe is 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 something that we're searching for and it can be what we want it to be as long as we find the thing that that fits that for us
1: so I think I think what you say is important it's important to accept that that most of the time those analogs are all we're going to get I think sometimes I get overly focused on the veteran stuff that I do and, and particularly in the combat veteran is that that's just one of the questions I've asked myself is, is war normal? Is, is living that way, a more normal sense closer to how we evolved. And I'm not talking about killing the enemy. I'm talking about we don't take risks anymore or we live in a risk averse society. Mm-hmm. We don't survive disaster on a daily, monthly weekly basis mm-hmm. uh, which were all things and I'm not trying to romanticize anything. I'm really not. I'm just, there's, there's certain elements to a forward deployed combat experience that I think all we can do is piece that together. Um, just based, just based on what I've learned, obviously I've never experienced it that we don't. Uh, and it's one of the things that Sebastian younger talks about that, that people do experience viscerally after natural disasters. After hurricane, after flood, fire, tornado, when everybody, when the people who are left survived it together, it creates a sense of togetherness and almost joy. Like he, you know, he reports in that book, like it's, it's almost difficult for people to reconcile that probably the best time of their life or the closest they've ever felt to people or whatever was in the aftermath of a disaster.
0: Yeah. Cause they didn't have to give a fuck about anything else because they just lived.
1: Right. Right. And they, and, but they were forced to come, like, you didn't really care if the guy next door was an asshole, like you depended on each other, you know? And so I think I'm more, I'm sort of trying to get to what's this sort of purely completely actualized idea of this. What does it mean? What are we missing viscerally? And then, so then be able to define how do we find elements of that and how do we find reflections of that in our life today? So I think I think I'm getting at what you're saying is important. Like I want to understand it in its totality, so that when you say, I like when I first started doing martial arts, you like MMA was not even a phrase that existed. It was just okay. We're doing karate from 6:30 to 7:30, and we're doing judo from 7:30 to 8:30, and and then Bible verse. You right. know, like like right. that. That was MMA when I was 14 and started doing that. Right. 30 years ago, you know, or whatever. So, and and that was like, and you could see you could see the bond. Like my dad uh was a what do you call it? a ninth dawn black belt. I mean he taught taekwondo yeah. for years and yeah. years and years and but he didn't just do he did taekwondo and karate and judo and studied sword and that you could see in that community of guys who fight each other and and yeah. learn how to fight it's a closer and that's one of the things to talk about too like I don't think you see a heavy veteran presence in certain job fields and certain communities for the sort of stereotypical adrenaline junkie reasons that are put out there. I don't buy that. I think it's because tribe is a heavier part of the cultures in fire department, police department, motorcycle club, certain kinds of skilled construction jobs. Agreed. Like yep. it's not it, – I, I get it that like if you're in a SWAT team – there's some adrenaline, and if you've done whatever adrenaline, I I just don't think that's the main reason. I don't think adrenaline junkie is necessarily for most people. I think in those cultures, tribe exists on a level that it doesn't for a lot of us, and I think that's why we see a heavier veteran presence in that stuff. Okay.
0: So, um, as we wind down a little bit, uh, let's just chat a little bit about like what are you doing to take care of yourself during this quarantine, and I know that you have you have a little bit of anxiousness around it, but just. Talk to us about how that's going and, and how you're coping and and going from there.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, my most acute concern has been my staff, like my employees, you know, in my business. And there's a certain level of anxiety around not feeling like I could be there in a way that I wish I could be for them. But you know, now we've got the SBA programs. like So, so some of that pressure is being lifted.
0: Are you still open?
1: Uh, barely. We're right. open for certain people. Staff is way down. Like, we're not supposed to be generally open, um, but we are supposed to be open so that people who are considered essential workers can bring their dogs to us and stuff like that. So um, I'm not sure who, whatever, somehow we're essential. Um,
0: So why can't, why can't I bring my dog to you?
1: Well, they've just asked if you're not considered, but so then you could
0: but if I was non essential, why, why can't I get out? Why can't I drop my dog off if I stay in my car and
1: which is how we're doing it. You're not allowed right. to come into right. the lobby. We take the dog from a the car they're, I think they're just asking everybody to stay at home, right. which I, you know,
0: if you I, go down Massachusetts street, nobody's staying home. Right. But yet I, all the businesses are closed. I'm not one to
1: argue with it, yeah. uh, but th- so that's my most acute concern. And also, as we talked about, I just started, we started building the pet campus. So that's where my nest egg went. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to put that down to buy that property and start that construction. So I'm, I, I have less of a, an operating reserve, um, uh, uh, much less. And I'm spread a lot thinner. I have a lot more expenses. Like I'm just in a much more vulnerable position than I was a year ago, at which time I sort of had done the responsible thing. And I could say, okay, everybody, I can pay you for six more weeks and, and we'll reassess it. Then just go home. You know, like I'm just not in that position anymore because I started that West side. So I just mm-hmm. financially and career wise, I'm in a, the most vulnerable position I've been in, in a long time. I'm spread so thin and I've leveraged, I'm Leveraged in a way I've never been leveraged before. Like when I first bought the daycare, there was an out, like it, that loan payment was a little bit less than like a house payment. Yeah. So I wouldn't have built anything in life. If, if that whole thing just tanked and I had to make that payment on my own for seven years, I just would have been poor for seven years, but I would have made the payment, you know. Right. If this doesn't work out, see you in bankruptcy court. Right. <laughs> like there's no, okay, I'm not going to make a $20,000 a month payment on my own. Right. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. just not a thing. So I'm, I'm leveraged and at risk in a way that I haven't been before that this, this puts that kind of pressure on me. You know, speaking of now, I feel more insecure financially than I have in a while. Uh, Whereas, and and now it's not just me or it's not just me and my wife. It's me and my wife and two kids. Mm -hmm. So now I feel like there's more people relying on me than just like, well, I'll get by. If I have to move to a smaller apartment and eat Raymond noodles, I can do like, that's not, I got kids relying on me now. So So, i feel more pressure that way. So how
0: are you, but I, I hear you saying you're feeling the pressure, Yeah, but you're always somebody that's been able to cope. Yeah. Right. And you've always found ways to cope. Right. Yeah. And use coping skills. So what are you doing now for our listeners to understand a little bit? Like the one so, listener to cope with kind of some of their fears right now.
1: I, so I've been prioritizing exercise, mm-hmm. uh, almost to the point of probably annoying some people, <laughs> but like, Hey, I need to get in my 30 minutes at least of I've got to exercise. I'm going to lose my mind. Okay. Um, and then, like, and this is just a trick, finding things that I need to get done that are outside. Like, I'm not just outside fucking off. I'm still being productive, and I'm still being a good husband and taking care of the house, but, like, the shit needs to get done. So, you know, I mow the grass or cut a tree, burn some fires, uh, I'm working on the siding on my house, like, just being outside but staying productive, um, okay. for a certain part of the day, cause it's some, some, some part of the day, I'm just putting out fires. Like this thing's come up, that thing's come up, I need you to sign this, I need you to send this over. We're looking at this program, mm-hmm. reading about trying to catch up on the, all the laws and the, the $40 trillion stimulus packages that is probably honestly just stimulus package one. Mm-hmm. Um, just trying to stay up on everything. And, and then, but then, and, and this is where I haven't progressed in my, um, learning is that some of it is I just had to, it just had to burn hot until it burned out. Yep. I was just anxious about it until I lost the energy and the ability to stay that anxious about it. And then I got to work. Right. Um, And that, that, that was that joke where I told you when we were recording that I'm doing much better as long as everything's okay. Right. So that was a, (laughs) that was a, that was a a size of storm that my shelter was not built strong enough to withstand. So I just had to get rained on for a little bit. Yeah. And then, You know, and some of that is, I guess, being able to recognize that as a certain skill. Also, just understanding this is going to burn a certain amount of RAM. It's going to slow my computer down. Mm -hmm. So, I'm going to try and move it to the background and focus on a few other tasks, and it's just going to burn energy for me for a while. Right. So, I'm just, it's a week or two later. So, I'm just less anxious than I was because I hit the wall and I got to work, you know. Um,
0: This, this, I almost said a curse word. I almost called you a curse word. But I was driving home from Tulsa. He gives me a call. He's like, this thing's getting terrible. You better load up on groceries and you better get after it. I just bought $500 worth of groceries. Oh, I still do, have do, them. Do, do, do. And I was like, what is, what is going on here? And so then I get home and Jill gets home and I'm like, we got to go to the grocery store. And we went and spent like $300 on groceries. Yeah, man. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that. I I, I did. Appreciate it. I, I've got food at home. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like if there's supply interruption,
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm good. Yeah. No, I got I'm not gonna name name. I got a message from somebody who doesn't panic and I took it seriously. Yeah. Somebody in a position sense. to know and he's not a panicker and he just was like, This could get absolutely rowdy. Mm-hmm. You and should like do what you need to do.
0: And it's gotten rowdy and we're all coping. Yeah. And we're all we're all figuring it out.
1: And so far there hasn't been an interruption in food supply, just in toilet paper supply. Right. And sanitizer supply. But
0: but I, you still see toilet paper.
1: I haven't in a while.
0: You haven't, yeah. Uh-uh. You just don't go at the right time. Yeah, I've seen it every Sunday.
1: Oh God, no, yeah, I haven't I see. seen it.
0: So when you go, and people don't destroy the um, pallets to get after it, and they allow them to put it out on the shelves, oh. you see it. Okay, yeah, it's there.
1: No, I was acting on the advice of somebody who's not one to panic, and I was like, "Cool, I'm gonna go buy some groceries." Like, yeah, and now I'm in a one in one out. I didn't like buy out the store. I just thought, yeah. and again, I was more focused on my girls. Like, what do my girls eat? And so now, if we use one of that thing, I go buy another of that thing. So we have three of them. So now I'm back to buying groceries normally. We have yeah. a we have a supply, yeah. and I just replace one in one out. I just replace the supply. Yeah. And now, if there's a, I know my girls can eat for a week or two if shit gets really wild. Yeah. You know, like, and I I feel like a responsible dad. Yeah. Feel like an adult now. I'm not like, oh, there's no food left in the cupboard. We should go to the store. Like I feel like an adult. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, it's going to, you know, there's always going to be food. We're going to be all right. Yeah. It's going to blow. It's going to it's going to get through. It's sad. There's lots of sad things happening. Yeah, man. It's going to it's going to work out. This isn't the first time we've been through something like this. So, um, stay strong everybody. Stay vulnerable. Um, Anthony, thanks for coming on and, and chatting with your staff Thanks for having me. Some really great things. And I'm, you're going to be on some more at some point. So, Hey, Hey everybody. Um, remember a strength being strong is also being vulnerable. All right. Peace.